Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining us to break down a big week in media and marketing is our senior media reporter Zoe Samios. Hello. And our advertising and comms reporter Abigail Dawson. Hello. Plus, coming up later, we'll be talking to Shadow Communications Minister Michelle Rowland about the digital economy. They still don't have a digital economy strategy. Betting ads. There is an appetite within the public for there to not be sports gambling advertising um, on television. And ABC funding. But first, the week's topics. The most dramatic week in the history of the ABC. Lisa Messenger and me. Fucking publicity stunt. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> and WPP merges two of its biggest brands. So there are only many weeks like this one. Um, not that I can remember anyway, apart from maybe that week they announced that Nine and Fairfax were merging a few <laughs> weeks ago. Um, on Monday, the board of the ABC fired its managing director, Michelle Guthrie, which seemed to come pretty much out of nowhere. And by Thursday, Chairman Justin Milne had walked the plank too. Um, the board rang me this morning and um, asked to have a meeting without me, which to which I, of course, uh, agreed. And at that meeting, I understand they <clears throat> decided to suggest to me that I might stand aside while these various investigations that have been proposed um, take place. So, Zoe, before we get to Justin Milne, let's go back to the start of the week. What the hell happened with Michelle Guthrie? Ah, that's a great story, Tim. Uh, well, do we want to go into... Uh, where she came from to start off, just quickly. Yeah, yeah, that's a good place to start. So she's been there less than two years. Yeah, so she was about 2.5 years into her five-year term at oh, the ABC. Which is a polite way of saying more than five years, more than two years. <laughs> yes, it's a polite way of saying it. She was appointed to the role of managing director in December of 2015 and then joined in May 2016 from uh, Google, where she was the head of the managing director of agencies over in Singapore. So this is my first thing. What is this obsession with they used to work at Google as if it's an automatic stamp that someone's a genius. They know the world of technology. They're going to be brilliant. Lots of people worked at Google. And why did Google let them leave if they were so good? That's a very good point. And, and for the record, I've never thought that anyone that works at Google's a genius or anything like that. But it's important to note, I guess, in this case, because it was one of the many things that Michelle Guthrie was attacked for in her time with the ABC, that and the fact that she was a Murdoch hatchet woman as well. Uh, she worked for 13 years for News Corp uh, among different roles. I think Foxtel was one. She and was at Star, Star TV, Yeah, exactly, in Asia. So she's had a number of different roles. Basically, there's, I mean, there's a million reports that have been done on this, but what seems to have happened is there was some ongoing tensions in recent months between Michelle Guthrie and the ABC chairman, Justin Milne. Yet none of that really emerged, did it, until the day? No, I did. It didn't. It didn't. But I think what we've seen this week, and I'm sure we'll get to it later, is that once you throw one person under a bus, everyone sort of starts throwing each other under the bus. So it, it seems like they were trying to keep the peace and trying to have some sort of mutual agreement to see Michelle Guthrie uh, resign and, so and when what, that didn't go to plan, things happened. What were his criticisms of her then? I think one of the major criticisms was her leadership style, though he did not go into what the problem with that leadership style was. He just said... I mean, that's the only that. thing that he's said on <laughs> yeah. the record is 
there was an issue with her leadership style. And then when pressed by ABC journalists, he has just said, I'm not going to go into that and basically talks down to the ABC journalists and said, I'm not going to explain that to you. you. (laughs) (laughs) But if he's going to use ABC staff and the taxpayers as a justification for getting rid of Michelle Guthrie, he said that he did it for the good of them and and the ABC needed to move forward. If we're going to be the excuse, if we're going to be the reason, then surely we need more justification. If I'm going to be used as the reason to get rid of Michelle, well, then I'd like to know a bit more than because leadership. I didn't realise he was blaming you. Well, he, a he's, of, well, he is. A, he, a lot he of is. people have been blaming you for things this week, but we'll get on to that when we get <laughs> on to Lisa Messenger. That, that, that is part of the job description. But he did say that it was taxpayers. It was for the good of taxpayers. It was for the good of people who watch the ABC. Well, that's me. I pay my taxes and I watch the ABC and he's claiming to have done so, you know, for me, for, for you and I'd just like to know a bit more, but he has not been drawn thus far. Zoe, no. he he also um, uh, partly alluded to it, but but it was also much said afterwards. There was a criticism that she just wasn't seen as a sort of high enough profile person when it came to championing the ABC. She didn't seem to like that side of it. That's true. And I think as we go into this discussion, we'll see that people who were criticising her for perhaps not backing the journalists and the editorial independence of the ABC, that kind of reversed when all the stuff about Justin Milne came well, we'll out. Come on but we'll come on to that later. But, yeah, she was she was seen as someone that wasn't incredibly high profile. When, uh, they, when she was appointed, there was a profile on her in the Sydney Morning Herald at the time which was comparing uh, Mark Scott, who was the uh, former ABC managing director, and uh, Guthrie. I miss Mark Scott. <laughs> I think everyone else does by the end of this week. But she was she was basically said to have had more broadcasting experience, but he was much more focused uh, being a newspaper veteran on the journalists. And one of the biggest criticisms that they had of Guthrie was that she wasn't for the journalists, that she lacked an understanding of what those people stood for. In saying that, as we've seen this week, everything can change and it looks like she was defending and standing for things that maybe people didn't necessarily see. But well, it's part of her job to sell the story of the ABC to her staff, to sell the journey that exactly. she's taking the ABC on to her staff. Which she didn't do. And to sell so. it to the public. So who knows, maybe she was doing an admirable job and defending Emma Alberici and defending the staff and standing up for the ABC but she was quiet at moments that mattered and she was known for being very good at having pre-prepared remarks and spouting those, but not at coming out swinging in favour of the ABC. Well, we'll explain the reference to Emma Alberucci in a minute. Um, Zoe, just before we get on to sort of Justin Milne's fall, um, maybe just explain how the roles of the board and the managing director work together. So... If we go to the top in the chair, the chairman of the ABC board is appointed by the Governor General and the ABC chairman and the board members will appoint the managing director. The idea of the managing director is to manage the day-to-day operations. The idea of the board is to oversee you know, strategy, a much bigger view of the whole business. But there was a lot of criticism this week and something that I really enjoyed on Twitter where people were saying that, you know, Justin almost wanted Michelle's role, Michelle wanted Justin's role. She wanted to be a bit further back overseeing, you know, the structural strategy of the business and he wanted to be in the day-to-day operations. And I liked that that was a comparison because it definitely did feel, I think there was one piece perhaps in the Herald Sun, they called him 
wanting to be the CEO in chief or something like that. And it, it seemed like it had all crossed over. Well, Viv, I remember very early on, on the, the sort of first day as Michelle went, I remember rather naively saying to Paul Wallbank, our news editor, do you think Justin Milne would make a good managing director instead? And admittedly, that was before he went on that first disastrous interview on News 24 you were talking about, where he was super patronising to his own journalist. Um, but at that point, it certainly looked like, you know, most people were sort of saying, oh, painful but probably the right thing uh, but then something of a twist um as one exec media executive from another organization said to me this week slightly distastefully it turned out that she was wearing a suicide vest as she walked out of the building um and some emails began to emerge look there's certainly some dramatic language being used around this i know that on thursday on the cover of the australian they were talking about how the ABC resembled Baghdad after the fall of Saddam Hussein, which I suspect it didn't. Uh, in fact, I can guarantee it didn't. But, look, I can see why people are, are drawing on this dramatic imagery. Emails have leaked to the Sydney Morning Herald. I personally haven't seen them, but it, it's been very widely reported that Justin Milne was contacting Michelle Guthrie and telling him to get rid of journalist Emma Alberici after her coverage, which was found to be problematic and incorrect and was reworked. This was of tax issues. Yes, yeah, so she was reporting on proposed tax cuts by the then Turnbull government, uh, which upset then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and Justin Milne allegedly got involved and was pressuring Michelle Guthrie to just get rid of Emma Alberici. More emails have apparently come out as well where Justin Milne was getting very upset that Triple J wanted to change the broadcast date of its hottest 100 away from Australia Day. He was allegedly citing Malcolm Turnbull's displeasure as the reason for it. It's worth mentioning, of course, they go back a long way. They are long-term friends, yeah, which makes this whole idea of editorial independence at the ABC quite difficult to defend if it does turn out that Milne was doing bidding on behalf of Turnbull, whether Turnbull asked for it or not. And he is also on the board of Myob, which was featured in that fateful tax report as well. Yes. So, I mean, I'm sure Milne would claim, and he is indeed claiming, that he's always had the interests of the ABC at his heart and that's what he's looking out for. When things like this start coming out, though, it certainly starts making Michelle look like the hero in this story and suddenly we have a new villain in the form of Justin Milne. Now, my question is, of course, there's nothing to be said about who who actually did leak those emails. So um, certainly they'd reached the whole board. So we can't automatically assume they came from Michelle Guthrie's camp. But certainly it was an amazing turnaround in her image between when she was fired and the end of the week. And I guess two things were, number one, Hiring a good spin doctor works, doesn't it? And number two, why the hell didn't she do it two years earlier? Well, look, she has definitely transformed the narrative from, you know, the hopeless Google bot who didn't understand the ABC to defender of the people, defender of Emma Alberici standing up to Malcolm Turnbull's best mate, Justin Milne. It's interesting because... Because of the way that narrative has been spun, we actually don't know the real Michelle Guthrie. Maybe she was hopeless, but she's just spun this very well. Or maybe she was fighting the good fight for the ABC the whole time. But you're right that perhaps she should have done that more publicly and more visibly a long, long time ago. Zoe and Viv, I'm going to ask you a really, really hard question. Great. Um, 
no managing director, no chairman, lots of calls for the whole board to resign as they, they were all party to all of this. What happens next? Oh, God, that's a very hard question. Well, Communications Minister Mitch Fifield uh, has agreed to do uh, an inquiry as so basically the ABC had a staff meeting earlier this week. They passed a unanimous motion to have an independent inquiry into Milne's emails and that he would step down or resign while that was underway. Now that he's resigned and, and Mitch Fairfield announced that an inquiry would, would commence, I think that's probably the next step. But who, who's appointed chairman in the meantime? I have no idea. Well, in Michelle, being fired, David Anderson has stepped up to be acting managing director. And I know that Gavin Morris, who's the head of news uh, at ABC, has just been telling staff to get on with it, hold your heads high, keep going, keep reporting on this as you would any other organisation. So for most people at the ABC, which I'm sure doesn't resemble Baghdad at the moment, I'm sure they're just (laughs) doing what they do every day and They'll they'll end up appointing someone who no doubt will end up being the victim of government complaints and and all sorts. It's not a new phenomenon. This government coming after the ABC and questioning its funding and its model. Now you mentioned Gavin Morris. He's come out of this quite well, hasn't he? Because all of this pressure to fire Michelle Guthrie, to fire the uh, political editor, none of that happened. So. It was either stopped at the Michelle Guthrie stage or the next stage. Um, it, it feels like there have been a couple of backstops providing some support for the editorial staff. Well, I guess that in that sense it shows that the ABC can be somewhat independent. There was obviously a lot of pressures on all of these people to get rid of Emma Alberici, to stick with the Hottest 100 date, to get rid of various people who'd upset various politicians and board members. And perhaps them sticking around and Justin Milne resigning as a result of all of this shows that actually the ABC has a bit more integrity than perhaps the government believes. The other thing that I wanted to add on top of all of this that's happened, and it's back on that editorial independence thing, maybe it's just a case of Milne and Turnbull being friends, but I think it's massively concerning that a chairman or a managing director is so worried about budget cuts to the ABC that will ultimately compromise the purpose of the ABC. If you are trying to make sure your journalists ultimately don't piss off the people that will give you funding, there's ultimately going to be a bias in there. And I think this week for me has been particularly disappointing because even if I did have the perception that the ABC wasn't biased, it feels as though they are so concerned that they are going to be strangled or or cut or axed or whatever analogy they want to use. I think there was cutting the fat um, that was used earlier this year. When we're when there is that much pressure on them, that is a really big concern for the editorial independence of the ABC because ultimately if they're so busy trying to make sure that they don't lose funding, they might compromise what they're actually set out to do. I think if there's one thing that summed up the personality of the ABC's culture uh, earlier this week, it was when the staff had their protest meeting and at the last minute they had to move it away from reception where they're going to have it because they had some visiting puppies they didn't want to disturb. Well, I think that's fair. There's no need to bring the puppies down into all this. <laughs> that's true. I did enjoy all the tweets saying, meanwhile, also at the ABC and just all these little cute little puppies. But you can see that they're a business and when you look at those photos, 
you know, it is. it reminded me of the strikes that Fairfax Media's had in the years gone by. There's this camaraderie and they all stand for something. Whether or not the top also feels that way, it, it didn't perhaps seem that way this week, but at least the staff underneath seem to be robust and working together. Well, next, big changes at two of the world's most famous agencies. So there were some quite interesting developments in Adland this week too, with uh, WPP consolidating two of its biggest brands, creative agency Y&R, back in the day Young and Rubicon, and digital agency VML, which will now become VML Y&R. <laughs> Abby, what does this mean? I somewhat have a little bit of deja vu, Tim. This uh, this merger that um, WPP has brought on reminds me somewhat of about a year ago when the White Agency and Grey Group merged to become White Grey. Fellow WPP agencies. <laughs> Correct. Um, and it all feels very, very similar. So when the White Agency and Grey Group merged in, I think it was May last year, they decided to do a joint CEO thing where Miles Joyce, the CEO of the White Agency, and Paul Warboys, the CEO of the Grey Group, became joint CEOs at White Grey. How did that go? (laughs) (laughs) To put it politely, not great. Um, It didn't didn't really work for them. Um, Another year later, both CEOs were gone and M&C Saatchi's Lee Simpson was brought in and is now running the agency. And for me, it just feels like VLM YNR is heading down the same path. So they've said that um, Pete Bozolkowski, who joined the agency three months ago to lead YNR Australia and New Zealand. And where was Pete before? He was the Sydney CEO of Leo Burnett, um, but had previously worked at JWT, so a, a WPP agency. And Aidan Hepburn, the CEO of VML, who's been there for, I think, about six years, are going to run the agency together. So who's... Oh, just like the White Grey merger. Isn't it quite similar? So it is it is really interesting. And, and another thing that kind of comes to my mind with this as well is there are some client clashes for both VML and YNR. So VML do project work with McDonald's on their digital account, but YNR holds the creative account for Burger King. And then you also have two retail brands. This is out of New Zealand. Correct. Um, and you also have two uh, retail brands, Uniqlo, who VML have the account for, and Best and Less, which YNR recently just won the account for. So there will be some client losses there, I can only assume. And I suppose on the McDonald's side of things as well, once this is effectively a creative agency, don't DD, is it DDB that Correct. work with McDonald's? So they're yep. going to have a view on that as well, presumably. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it would be hard for um for VML YNR to work on the McDonald's account um, if DDB are already doing the advertising. Also worth noting, of course, for a while YNR, well... They had a merger before that, of course, when they took over George Patterson and became George Patterson YNR and then GP YNR and then just YNR. Yeah, and look, to to jump in there when Abby was giving that um, very succinct analysis there, at one point she did actually say VLM YNR instead of VML YNR, which just shows (laughs) what a confusing and I would argue ridiculous uh, and unimaginative name it is because – you're just going to get the letters so confused. It's not something you can turn into a word. I don't even know how you'd say it. Vlm were, 
and it's just it's too I many was thinking, letters. Uh, do you know, oh, I was thinking, they, it's almost a bit like familiar, familiar. <laughs> oh, you're because it is all too familiar, yeah. isn't it, Tim? <laughs> But another thing that's sort of interesting to me as well is if we look at WPP as a whole, globally and locally, there have been mentions of consolidation um, and there were rumours flying around at the start of the year that JWT and Grey or JWT and White Grey here in Australia were going to merge. So I'd be curious to see if there are, if this is, I suppose, a signalling of more consolidation under Mark Reid, the new CEO of WPP. This is WPP globally. Correct. And if there are going to be more changes there and more consolidation. I mean, Sibling is an agency is already sort of reporting directly into YNR while it still does have its own branding and I think one of its own accounts. That's also already sort of working under YNR. So it's, it's really interesting and I'd be curious to see what happens next. Next, what happened when Vivian went head-to-head with Lisa Messenger? So a few days back at Mumbrella's published conference, Lisa Messenger was on stage and she uh, revealed that she plans to bring back the print edition of her magazine, Collective Hub, not long after saying she was going to close it. Um, Viv was interviewing her on stage and things got a little bit heated. So so to be a cynic and probably preempt the um, Mumbrella comment thread when I go and write this, were you ever actually exiting print or you know was it just a bit of a a publicity ploy i'm cancelling the magazine i get some publicity from that and you know the the goodbye letter on the cover of the magazine got lots of coverage only to come back and say hey i'm back on november 29 get some coverage for that is it just a case of you knowing how to play the media at that, I want to swear, and you just said to me... You can swear at me. And you just said to me about the previous session, if you have any fucking idea what it takes to run something like this, there is no way on the planet. If you knew... You're not a business owner. If you knew the blood, the sweat, the freaking cash I've enriched, not having a baby, like I put so much on hold, I take massive offence to that. I wasn't saying it's my point of view. That is okay. I'm letting you know what's going to be be written. That's okay, but whoever wants to say that, perhaps read everything I've written. I am probably in this country the most open book, six books in four and a half years. There is not a thing I don't share authentically. That book there, I share every single detail about every single bit of financial hemorrhaging, everything I did. So I get it, and I'd love that to be a big fat fucking yes. <laughs> well then, uh, you certainly addressed that one. <laughs> yes, I do. And you can say fuck, 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 That's fine. I, I gave you permission to swear, so that, that is fine. Um, I'm a very passionate person, especially when it comes to this. And I'll tell you why. I bust my freaking ass every day to give a voice to other business leaders, to entrepreneurs, with anyone out there who has a vision, every single freaking day. And the sacrifices and the putting my ass on the line every day to do that for other business owners, you know, that that is fucking passion. And nothing on the planet can change that fucking publicity stunt. 
So that was what happened when uh, Lisa and Viv crossed paths. Um, uh, Viv, before we get into the practicalities, is there anything you would do differently about asking that question? Because it was very controversial in our comment thread, whether you've been disrespectful towards Lisa by asking a cynical question. I don't think there's anything I'd do differently. I went into that fireside chat really with no preconceptions of Lisa, her background or her future. To me, on stage when she announced she was bringing the Collective Hub magazine back after only folding it in April, I was genuinely surprised. It was the first time I've heard of it. And instinctively, I knew where the Mumbrella comment thread would go, which is exactly where it's gone, which is people questioning whether she was doing this all for publicity. So I asked the question, made it clear it wasn't my own point of view because I wanted to give her the chance to address those criticisms before they happened so that she could get on top of it and, as she did, completely shut it down and say, no, that's not correct. But by the Lisa fan club, that's obviously been, I would argue, misinterpreted as, as me, Vivian, coming coming for Lisa. No, she's, she also said on stage she was going to be bringing it back and probably twice a year. Others in the comment that have suggested, no, it's coming back as a one-off. Have we got to the bottom of what's actually happening? Look, it is confusing. She announced it on stage under the banner of print isn't dead. I'm bringing back the magazine. Issue 53 will be available on the 29th of November. She then later clarified it will probably be twice a year. I've now had her and a number of members of her fan club contact me and tell me that I'm wrong and it's probably only going to be a one-off. There's lots of unclear language, though, with this probably and maybe, and the thing that she has said officially on the record is it's going to be twice a year and they're going to see how it goes. Zoe, your views? Look, I think Lisa... And and I listened to the recording. I unfortunately wasn't in the room at the time, not till the very end where it was very heated to walk into. But I think Lisa is a woman of a lot of contradictions. What I heard from the beginning of that was, you know, a, a time of reflection, looking back on the challenges that she had with her print edition to then go around and not only just say, I'm bringing back print, but all those people I made redundant, I'm going to hire as freelancers. And they're going to do the work again, but it's going to be more efficient because I'll have KPIs and all of that, et cetera. It, I, I don't know what's going on in her head. And, and, and I feel it almost feels like this one off or twice a year is a publicity stunt again on stage at Mumbrella Publish. I, I also have nothing against Lisa, but it doesn't feel like she has any sort of direction. It feels very impulsive. And 
I also just really don't agree with hiring back people after you've made spent what half a million dollars on redundancies, Viv. So the, the other question between myself and Lisa that got heated is is what you're alluding to. So when she shut down the collective hub, uh, she said she let all of her 32 staff members go, which cost her five hundred thousand dollars in redundancies. Seventeen of those 32 have been brought back as freelancers to bring back this one-off edition of the magazine. Now, she said it's so much more effective. She's never been happier. The staff have never been more productive. They're not wasting time in meetings. She made it sound bloody fantastic. She she also used the phrase, I think, which I, I, I think some people who've been, some journalists have experienced redundancy, if not there, then elsewhere might object to. She was giving them their freedom. Yes. She, she basically said she wanted to let them run off and be free and, and do other things and be creative and get in touch with their genius zone. Um, lots and have side hustles. Yes. Lots of, um, lots of, you know, buzzwords there. I did question her though. She said that she got really frustrated when they were full-time staff members and she would sit there seething, you know, why aren't you working harder for me? Why aren't you being more effective? My point was, well, why couldn't you just give these people more stringent KPIs and a better structure when they were full-time staff members to get the best out of them and and save yourself $500,000 in redundancies? But she was adamant that that was not the way to do it. She pointed out very correctly that I'm not a business owner, so I don't understand. But, I mean, uh, she's right. I I don't understand. one, I can't see how 17 people are needed to bring back a one-off edition of a magazine. And two, oh, give me give me back the $500,000. I think it's I, I used to be a business owner and I'm pretty sure I knew quite a lot of people working for me who did work quite hard. Well, look, she, she has subsequently been very supportive of her staff and her staff too have come out swinging at me, um, telling me to go and work for the Daily Mail. So they obviously do support each other. But, you know, she did say on stage that she was getting annoyed because they weren't working hard enough for her. That's not the sort of person that I would then hire back to relaunch my magazine, whether it's a one-off or not. If you're annoying me because you're not working hard, (laughs) you don't come back for round two. The great thing about being in the Mumbrella cast is you get the final word. Oh, she's got some media outlets too, so I don't think this is the last we'll hear of Lisa. (laughs) Next, Shadow Communications Minister Michelle Rowland joins me for her first Mumbrella interview. Joining us now in the Mumbrella cast is Michelle Rowland, who is the Shadow Communications Minister... Michelle, let's uh, let's start with the big stuff. What's your favourite ad of all time? Of all time, f- whether Australian, whether global. My favourite ad of all time is "I Feel Like a Two Is or Two." Nineteen eighties. Uh, no, I wasn't old enough to drink then, and I didn't. Uh, but uh, it was. I think it was iconic for a few reasons, and when I watched it uh, before I came on here, it reminded me. It was so masculine. Such a beautiful celebration of male cricketers. Uh, everything from Dennis Lilly and the medallion and the hairy chest and the dressing room afterwards, pouring the beer on his head, the ring pool, the old ring pool where it actually used to come off. So makes me feel young but also just reminds me of 
summer at my house in Blacktown in uh, the 1980s was basically watching the cricket. I suppose it's a bit like the the VB hard-earned first. It was very much about celebrating the end of a working day. Absolutely, and this was celebrating a win, but it was also just celebrating the game uh, because you had obviously the opposing teams there, but uh, they were celebrating together. Uh, the bits where I think it was Dougie Walters was taking um, taking a drink and part of it was running down his chin. And I think today if you were to film that, th- that w- wouldn't be what you would film. You'd film a clean, clean shot. But here it was very raw. Uh, and, you know, these were cricketers and yet they were starring in – it was essentially a production. And just that anthem, uh, it – Take, it takes me back, but also I just, I just loved the camaraderie in it as well. It was happy. It was a happy ad. And these days, what is your media consumption like? I'm sure it has to be very news focused. It is news focused, but I switch off in a variety of ways. It's mostly magazines. Uh, I enjoy magazines. I enjoy magazines with a lot of ads in them as now, well. Do you, do you buy them at the news agent? Do you subscribe? How do you find them? I have subscribed to uh, the Women's Weekly um, almost exclusively for all of my adult life, and I was reading it since I was sort of in my early teens. So the Weekly would probably probably be um, my most consistently consumed uh, media. Uh, and again, I. I think the ads in the weekly really reflect society as well. I think it's it's it is an iconic brand. I think people want to advertise in it, and they advertise in it cleverly. Uh, I also I really like catalogs. Um, I adore um, the Aldi catalog. I do like uh, Coles and Woolworth supermarkets catalogs. I was a checkout operator for eight years uh, while I was at school and university. So I like I do like catalogs of any description. And how do you start your day? What what, what do you do? Do you do you pick, pick up your device and check your emails? Are you going online to see what the news is? What what or are you switching on the radio? What do you do first? It'll be emails first, uh, just clearing what needs to be cleared. But then I will go to some curated content on uh, my Apple newsfeed. And uh, from there, I normally don't put on television first thing in the morning, uh, but when I'm in the car, I'll listen to the radio in the car and I'll listen to a variety from uh, ABC News to I'll switch over to some of the FM stations. And do you ever listen I, to Alan Jones on I do listen. I do listen to Alan Jones. I use the radio app um, to do that and I mostly do that either uh, at work um, and uh, I just I find that again, yeah. There's an instance of uh, reports of its death were greatly exaggerated. Radio, um, it's still there, and it has just like the uh, creative industries uh, of which advertising forms a part. It's still there, and, and it's still innovating. And you live in Sydney. Do you have a favourite FM breakfast team? Then uh, I do like the Grill Team, uh, and I will switch on to Kyle and Jackie O uh, every now and then. Um, but I've also got a very soft soft spot for WSFM. So Amanda Jonesy Keller, Amanda, who's yeah. Um, yeah, she's they, they're doing very well. Um, and uh, in uh, they used to be located when they were two WS. They were located actually in Seven Hills, so literally down the road from me, where my electorate office is today. And that's now Hope. 
um, Hope FM. So a bit of a connection there with them as well. Well, let's talk some policy. Now, we, we will come to the MBN, but with the exception of the MBN, what do you see as the biggest policy difference between you and the current government? I think it would have to be the need for not having a piecemeal regulatory approach um, and really examining the ways in which, yes, connectivity is extremely important, 5G is coming, but how are we going to utilise all of these technological changes, these real step changes they are, how are we going to use them for the benefit of the whole of the economy? And I think the lack of a digital economy strategy, you know, we're about to go into the fifth anniversary um, of the election of a a coalition government. They still don't have a digital economy strategy. Um, We actually prefer to call it digital inclusion because the more we have spent the last couple of years consulting um, on what its component should be, the more we realise, look, this is about equality of opportunity. It's about ensuring that all Australians, regardless um, of whether you may be uh, hearing impaired, visually impaired, live in the regions, live in outer metropolitan Sydney, regardless of your uh, age cohort, you should be able to benefit from technological change. So that I think is the biggest difference. And and the difference is stark there because we've had countless numbers of uh, ministers or assistant ministers responsible for the digital economy, no strategy, nothing in sight. That's really interesting. And I, I you know, I, I've been here in Australia for about 12 years, but we, we was in the UK when Ofcom came along, which was the Almost exactly that's this cohesive, cohesive thinking across all media, which really drove a wider strategy. It took some tremendously clever public servants and people looking out to the, to the public sector to bring them in to make it happen. Where do you look to for your thinking on this strategy? Well, certainly Ofcom's one of them. They have really uh, led the way um, when it comes to having a real converged media environment, a communications act that they developed some years ago. Uh, But also New Zealand, uh, and I wouldn't have thought I'd say this, but, you know, when I was uh, many years ago, uh, when I was a communications lawyer, you know, New Zealand had to undergo a major transformation. They used to have disputes over telecommunications interconnection pricing that would go to the Privy Council, you know. And so finally in uh, the early 2000s, they got their own Communications Act, but they always seemed to have this understanding that communications was going to be the big driver of their economy. Like they got it from the start rather than just saying it, they did They did something about it. And, you know, they pursued um, a fibre model for uh, their broadband and, uh, and I think New Zealand also stands in uh, stark contrast to Australia. But certainly Ofcom, uh, you know, I wouldn't say everything they've done has been perfect, but certainly they are recognised as a bit of a standard uh, in terms of uh, regulatory achievement. And when it comes for the talent, the people to help you deliver a strategy around that, where will you look to for that? Um, Already I'm very lucky that I have managed to find many people in uh, the sector, uh, including uh, the advertising sector, people who are in interactive games, uh, just as another example, people who are interested in uh, introducing audio uh, description uh, for people who um, are vision impaired. Uh, So I think the point is there are plenty of people out there with these talents uh, and in some ways we stand in um, contrast to um, the US where I think there's much more of a culture of bringing in expertise from outside government. 
and with the minimal resources you have in opposition, one of the greatest challenges is that information asymmetry. You don't know what you don't know. Um, we have to wait until, for example, as uh, we recently had the latest NBN corporate plan come out. So we either have to use the mechanisms of the parliament or wait until publicly available information is on the scene. But I'll tell you what, um, people across um, a variety of industries who are all interested in the digital economy space, I um, am very grateful for the level of engagement I've had over the past two years. And certainly this is really informing um, some deep policy development that we're undertaking at the moment. Where do you stand on the ABC? We've obviously seen the government, certainly in real terms, make some cuts. Would you give that money back? We made an announcement some time ago that Labor would restore the some $84 million of cuts to the ABC that happened in the most recent budget. And look, there have been around uh, $500 million worth of cuts in the last uh, five years. And that, of course, comes on the back of Tony Abbott staring down a camera the night before the 2013 election saying no cuts to the ABC or SBS. Uh, But putting all that aside, we recognise that This round of funding cuts, even as the ABC has said themselves, this is thin end of the wedge. Uh, This will eat into content, this will eat into services, and they have managed to cope with all the other cuts that have happened so far. But what's important also is to guarantee some funding stability for the ABC going forward. They have huge challenges in the digital space. Uh, They need to ensure they Uh, attract and retain uh, the level of creativity um, that they've got and that they will need. And the public clearly values our public broadcaster. Um, They are the most trusted source of news by a country mile. Uh, They are innovative. You only have to look at their iView platform, which is really an Australian leader. Uh, So the need for the ABC to not only be supported but also um, enabled to do all the things it needs to do in this new media environment, we are very much alive to it. And look, at a time when we have a high degree of media consolidation, uh, we are about to um, become an even more concentrated media market than we already are and we are one of the most concentrated media ownership markets in the world The time has never been more important to support the ABC. And you touched on SBS as well. Do you think uh, having advertising as one of the sources of funding for the SBS is is the correct policy? Well, look, it's the policy that's that's there. And I think by and large, uh, it does work. Where I don't think it works is where government seeks to introduce even more advertising during uh, prime time. Uh, And that was certainly uh, something that this government was pursuing even when Malcolm Turnbull was communications minister. And the point that we made in opposing this and the government eventually dropped it and restored funding to the SBS, I guess it's twofold. Firstly, uh, you can't just use increasing advertising as uh, a proxy for budget cuts. Um, That just is unsustainable. And secondly, we have various players in uh, the Australian media who serve different purposes. We do have a commercial uh, free-to-air broadcasting market and the SBS and ABC as public broadcasters, whilst they are different, they sit in that ecosystem as complementary um, to one another. Uh, and you know, I think that... Uh, 
the amount of advertising we've got on the SBS at the moment, uh, it has shown to be uh, effective. Uh, and uh, although I know that there are some people who will claim, you know, we should never have advertising on our public broadcaster, we do only have commercial advertising uh, on the SBS. And it is quite, you know, they don't advertise everything. Uh, the stuff that they uh, do advertise, they clearly appear to be quite uh, quite picky in what they choose to advertise. Now, go back to a, a point you made a couple of minutes ago about this sort of, you know, uh, a more kind of cohesive communication strategy, you know, strategy for the communications industry. Um, something that's often struck me is that it always feels like in the end this stuff gets bogged down in the weeds somewhere, almost regardless of which government's there. And sometimes it feels like the big media owners are an incredibly strong lobbying body and they tend to get what they want from the politicians when they're in power. Is there some sort of fear factor in taking on those big players who buy ink by the barrel, they own the microphones, they own the, the, the TV cameras? Um when it comes to you sitting in that chair, do you do you think you'll be able to front them up when you have to? Look, it's a really interesting question. Uh, on one hand, the media reporting on how the media operates, it's inherently conflicted. Uh, I think that's the first point um, you can make. Uh, the second is... People are they are consuming media in different ways. Although we do have a very concentrated market in terms of media ownership, we have a lot of traditional voices just on different platforms who may uh, dominate uh, the online space. I think consumers uh, they're very well informed uh, these days, and I think they have high expectations. Uh, so I think there's – my point there is I think there's a couple of self-inhibiting factors there. But look, even as uh, a shadow, uh, the shadow spokesperson in this portfolio, um, there are difficult conversations that you have with stakeholders. Um, there are you know, differences of opinion that you'll have on a variety of issues. Uh, but I think above all else, as long as you are upfront uh, about that, I found that being authentic about uh, your motivations and what your policy imperatives are, I find that that's a good rule of thumb. Uh, I doubt you would ever find a shadow minister or a minister where they can simultaneously satisfy every stakeholder in their portfolio. But at the end of the day, I think we all need to remember, um, just even just as being public office holders, that our key stakeholders are the Australian citizens. Uh, so I think if we... By taking that principles-based um, mentality, I find that uh, you know, whatever does come along, as long as you can maintain what you actually believe in and what objective you're trying to serve, you know, hopefully that will hold me in good stead. Well, speaking of the the, the TV networks, the radio networks, they pay um, a spectrum licence fee, which probably comes to something like forty million a year, which was a kind of change in the rules recently when uh, when the, the, the media ownership laws were shaken up. Um, when we see the kind of 5G auction about to kick off and, you know, predictions are raising billions of dollars, it feels to me like maybe the TV and radio networks aren't actually paying market value for their uh, access to the spectrum. What, what do you think? Uh, I, I see, you, see your argument where it's going. Uh, you know, spectrum is a finite resource, just like numbers used but not consumed. It's a valuable um, public asset. And it's always the objective of government to maximise consumer returns um, for uh, those assets. I think in, in some ways, yes, we are talking about spectrum when it comes to 5G as well. 
Um, and the market will decide uh, the value of that spectrum. Uh, the conundrum that may arise at the moment, and some analysts have noted this, is the rules around 5G were designed with a certain number of market players in mind. And in the meantime, we've had the announcement of Vodafone and TPG coming to an arrangement. Uh, so that may in itself... Uh, I don't know whether the rules will end up changing uh, for the spectrum auction or uh, the, the prices that uh, are anticipated. Uh, but uh, I think at the end of the day, you know, the market sets the value. I suppose spectrum. that's the thing that's always puzzled me, though, is that it feels like the market doesn't set the value when it comes to TV and radio um, access. Uh, well, they did work out as part of this process. There was a, a detailed um uh, set of calculations that uh, went into it. And I know that, you know, some in the sector weren't happy with the amount uh, that they were paying. But uh, look, I think we need to come back to that principle of look, it, it is a finite resource. Government needs to um, ensure that its uh, value is maximised. Could you ever see you auctioning it back to potential TV companies, for uh, instance? Uh, look, I think that's looking a bit too far ahead into the future. And I think that, um, you know, those are the kinds of issues when we talk about the future of the platform, which everyone, everyone is thinking about the future of their platform these days. Everyone from radio to television to subscription broadcasting uh, I think that's one thing that a holistic and uh, well-integrated communications policy um, would examine. Uh, it's not one that uh, I'm examining from my position as Shadow Minister at the moment. Previously, you were the Shadow Minister for Multiculturalism. Um, I wonder, how do you feel about the sort of job that the media has done in covering the issue of so-called African gangs in Melbourne? I think it's been patchy. Uh, Coming from Blacktown, where we also have a high population of people from uh, South Sudan and various other African nations, uh, I think there's there's two things. I think firstly, in Blacktown, it's very clear that we are already, there's no real one dominant culture. But people do say, oh, I noticed that there's uh, a lot of uh, Africans who seem to be standing around a lot uh, in the street. Uh, and I think that sort of comment wouldn't be made if their skin colour was different. Um, so I think I think in some ways uh, the media has uh, quite a bit to answer for with some of the inflammatory um, terminology that's been going around. But look, I think in many respects they are also reporting on um, views that have been expressed politically as well, um, which I think has been unfortunate. And let's uh, let's cut to the bare bones of this, this is about trying to incite um, a law and order issue for an upcoming state election. That is what I think this came down to in the case of Victorian reporting. I think it was highly regrettable that we had some instances where uh, the media focused on people who said they were so-called uh, community leaders uh, and some of those, that reporting I think was quite uh detrimental overall. I don't think it reflected uh, well on anyone. Um, but I guess the second point I'd make is that I think if you speak to any Australian by and large, we would all agree that we live in a diverse multicultural nation. And I think that when uh, certain segments of the media choose to report in a way that pitches people against one another, and look, I'm not sure that 
certain people might have been seeking to do that, but overall I, I don't think uh, the media was seeking to report in that way. But I think when you do that, um, that level of disharmony runs very deep um, and it does not bode well um, for um, a coherent uh, multicultural society that we are. And the last point I'd, I'd just like to make on this, you know, I've had conversations with people in cabs who've, you know, said some pretty awful things about people who might have migrated to Australia and become citizens um, and they came from uh, African countries. And I like to show them the ad from uh, Western Sydney University, you know, about Deng. The one Deng. with Deng. Yes. The one about Deng, who is one of the greatest guys uh, you'll ever meet. I think that that ad um, did more for explaining uh, to people about um, not only struggle, but multiculturalism, the triumph of the human spirit, regardless of your background. And I think that uh, that would have to be, you know, I named my favourite ad of all time as, as as being Tui's, but certainly the one that moved me the most. And every time I watch it, I will still, uh, my eyes will well up. It's a wonderful it's, ad. It, in terms of power, that is the most powerful ad. It really is. You talk about sort of people being pitted against each other. Now, I sometimes think about that with politics as well. I, I was very struck um, not that long ago, Bill Shorten put out a statement, made some really nice comments about Malcolm Turnbull and Lucy Turnbull after he, he left the prime ministership. Um, more recently, you, you said some nice things about uh, MBM boss Bill Morrow a few days after he finished up in that role. Um, and then I kind of counteract that with last year, Mitch Fifield called you unhinged and hysterical, your counterpart as the, as the minister. Now, right now, your job is to tell Australians how bad he is at his job. He stands for nothing and is an absolute disgrace was a, was, was a statement you put out recently. But when the cameras are off, how do the two of you get along really as two humans? Uh, well, we don't actually deal with each other a lot face to face because uh, we're in different chambers. Uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of the legislative work of the parliament will get done in a, uh, a pretty routine way. Uh, you know, we're from different states, so it's not like we bump into each other at, at a lot of events. Um, but look, I think more interestingly, you know, you describe, um, you know, comments that I've made and comments that Bill Shorten had made. I think we should have more graciousness in Parliament wherever possible. Um, and I think Bill also was very gracious in his comments about Tony Abbott when he got rolled as well. Uh, he said words, and I still remember it, he said words to the effect of, you know, Mr Rabbit used to always, when he would meet troops or go to military commemorations, he would almost feel embarrassed that he hadn't served and he would say that. He said, Mr Abbott, you served, like you, you did serve this country. I think that amount of graciousness combined with respect for the office of Prime Minister is something where you can contrast Australia and the United States, for example. Uh, there is far more tremendous respect for the office of the President than I think the office of Prime Minister. And I'm not just you know, saying that that applies um, to one party who may be in power at any point in time. I think the office of Prime Minister was highly disrespected when Julia Gillard uh, was Prime Minister. Um, so I think that wherever you can lead ex by example and show a bit more graciousness, um, then that's not a bad thing. Do you like Mitch Fifield as a person? Oh, I don't dislike him as a person at all. In fact, there's very few uh, people in the parliament whom uh, <laughs> I would say that I dislike. 
Now, uh, lots of our listeners work in PR. Now, as you, you referred to earlier, you spent eight years as a checkout operator. Um, what would your advice have been to Coles and Woolworths when this Ferrari was going on over the stopping giving away plastic bags? Oh, I think the, the problem was that they kept flip-flopping. And Australians are reasonable people, but they really get cheesed off with inconsistency. Like I couldn't understand – well, I personally couldn't understand, well, if you want to incentivise people to undertake certain behaviours, then why are you engaging in this – uh, this sort of uh, price point. Um, so, look, I guess my advice would have been whatever decision you made, you should have just stuck with it. Like if you want to give them away, fine, but think about what this is saying about your overall message. Go back to your objective. You know, just as you know, politicians, we forget to go back and say, I'm actually answerable to the people of Australia. What are you trying to achieve here? And I don't think you'd find anyone disagreeing. Yes, we need less landfill. And, again, I think uh, – you know, Having been, uh, th- there has been a lot of advertising that's influenced the way we think about that, the whole um, reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, but uh, I, my problem was that they just couldn't seem to make a decision. And then they were looking at what the other one was doing and, guys, just make up your minds. Now, we chatted a little bit about um, ads already. Um, the, the way that ads are regulated effectively, it's a self-regulation system. Do you, do you see that as working? Oh, I think Australia has had um, a good track record in co-regulation and and self-regulation. I think the thing people understand about self-regulation in Australia is that where it doesn't work, um, you really expose yourself to the potential for that hard form of regulation in future. And I've always been one of these people, you know, I came from the, the law area of law I practice. I specialise in telecommunications, but it was competition law and regulation. And one thing you learn, you learn about hard law and soft law. And just because something is soft law um, doesn't mean that it is ineffective. In fact, sometimes it can be hard law um, that is ineffective. And the industry, industries know themselves better than regulators do. I think that's a fact. Um, and an industry knows that it needs to uh, conform to community standards. And often those community standards are what regulators seek to try and interpret. But sectors know. They, I think they know very well what those community standards are. So, look, what I'm a fan, I'm a fan of effective regulation. And sometimes that comes um, from having uh, legislative and regulatory powers. Sometimes that comes from having um, what are often voluntary and self-regulatory schemes. And where they work, I think that is where um, government should inherently be aiming to make those work wherever possible. Now, you are also a former, um, you, you served on the board of Screen New South Wales, mm. uh, industry funding body for, you know, one of, one, one of several funding of screen work, whether on TV or film. What do you see as the public role in funding stories on mm. our screens? I think in many ways it's changed, but the, the story, the end remains the same. It's about Australian voices and reflecting the diversity um, of Australian voices. And uh, I was very fortunate in my time at um, Screen New South Wales. I worked with Tanya Chambers, who is now in um, Western Australia. She was an excellent uh, CEO. And I was there during the period where it was moved into the investment um, portfolio. And that was that was celebrated because it recognised that this was a creative sector that was contributing to the economy, uh, and I also think 
you know, the public needs to recognise when we talk about these incentives towards the creative uh, industries, it's not just benefiting. And I know that it's often the image that we see. We see the Hollywood star or we see, um, you know, often a politician uh, with the Hollywood star. Um, but the people who are benefiting from this, a lot of them are from my neck of the woods in Western Sydney. These are, It's the multiplier effects of everyone from the logistics to the caterers to the makeup artists. Uh, and that sort of uh, multiplier effect on em- employment generation, um, I think, is one that is now starting to be appreciated. But look, the overall objective should be about facilitating the telling of unique Australian voices. Australians want to consume that as well, and advertisers want to advertise next to it. Um, we also, when I was there, we funded uh, a game as well, and this was quite some time ago. And now that we know the value of the gaming sector, it is in the billions of dollars, it's a global um, export market. Uh, I think that that also reflects the dynamic and innovative um, nature of the sector too and uh, the importance of um, the government's role in uh, ensuring that continues. Just jumping back a bit to advertising and self-regulation, what do you think about betting ads on TV, sports betting ads? Is there too much? Uh, I think sports betting, the reason why they're was such uh, an immediate public backlash about it. I think you have to go back a few years. And I think it was the ubiquity of um, a certain identity that was being promoted during sporting events. And just judging from the feedback I was receiving as a local member at that time, that was what really, that was the catalyst for a lot of the pushback on sports uh, betting advertising. But look, we called for in Labor at the beginning of last year, the importance of look, the government working with the sector, working with the uh, sporting codes, working with uh, the broadcasters to phase out um, gambling advertising uh, on um, uh, for for broadcasters on uh, on television. Uh, and look, there have been um, moves towards that, and that's um, uh, you know, here. I'm talking about sports gambling, of course. Uh, In part, that has been uh, achieved and the government, you know, was quite late coming to the party, but we welcome them doing that anyway. Would you like to see it go further? Uh, Look, I think uh, we've got got in place now restrictions around certain times and I think that it would be prudent to see that that's working um, for um, gambling advertising um, for sports. Uh, We've also recently had that extended to the online space and that took quite a while to be able to work out the logistics of doing that. But um, the ACMA um, recently announced uh, that they were going to be implementing that. So in that sense, it's platform neutral. Uh, so I think that there there is an appetite for the public, um, it, within the public, for there to not be sports gambling advertising um, on television. Uh Having it during certain hours is a start and we should examine um, how that works. I guess part of it, and this has been brought up by uh, a number of critics who don't think this goes far enough, are kids really going to stop watching the game at the set time uh, for which uh, those restrictions cease applying? We'll see how how that goes and I think we need to ensure that that continues to be reviewed and, again, that it's in line with community standards. And... um just finally, um, if uh, Labor does form the next government and Bill Shorten invites you to continue working in this portfolio, 
what sort of relationship would you like to have with the communications industry? Uh, I think I've got a productive relationship already, um, but above all else, I'm having been a, a lawyer in it. I've also been in house. Uh, I I've been fortunate to learn from people in every aspect of the sector. Uh, everyone whom I have encountered who represents an industry group or uh, an important uh, player in the scheme has been very generous um, with their time. So if I can describe it in one word, it would certainly be collaborative. And there are some aspects of the sector where I think, and you look at telecommunications, for example, um, yes, there are um, issues that need to be overcome in terms of the consumer experience on the NBN, for example. But I think by and large, the organisations who uh, who were there, they know that they are answerable to consumers. They know that there um, are bodies uh, for, to which complaints can be made. I do think that a stronger consumer um, culture is one that everyone is aiming for. We might differ on how to achieve that objective. Uh, but ultimately, it's about the long-term interests of end users. It's about having um, viable, creative parts of it, having um, the best connectivity and infrastructure, ensuring that everyone can participate uh, within it. So the word I would describe is collaborative. I would certainly want to be someone who is collaborative. Michelle, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And that conversation with Michelle Rowland took place just before this week's dramas at the ABC, if you were wondering why I didn't ask her about it. And just before we go, a bit of housekeeping. Thanks for supporting the Mumbrella cast since we brought it back. If you haven't had a chance yet, we'd love it if you could rate it or even write a review on iTunes. Clue, five stars. (laughs) Or wherever you find your podcasts. That will help other people find it. And that is all for now. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. I'm on holiday next week, but please do join Vivian for the next Mumbrella cast. (laughs) (laughs) Surely I can say the word. Toodle pip. (laughs) 